Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Story Back in 1999, I used to work as a park ranger over at Yosemite National Park. It wasn't a job I ever really saw myself doing, the fact was that, until I busted my knees and had to stop playing football, the NFL was all I ever dreamed of. I was obsessed, it was football in morning, football in the afternoon, and at night I used to dream of football. But like many young men's dreams, They turned out to be nothing but the stuff of pipes. I needed a job, I needed money, and I needed it fast. So when an uncle told me of an opening up at Yosemite for a park ranger, I jumped at the chance. He told me it was relatively easy work, mostly outdoors, and I could rely on it. As long as there was state funding, as long as there were still trees sprouting out of the ground, I'd always have work. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. So there I was. 23 years old, decked out in my park rangers uniform, hiking through valleys and over hills, popping ibuprofen whenever my knees started to play up. I'd done the job for about two years in March of 99, and honestly, I'd grown to love it. Being out there meant being surrounded by nature on a daily basis, I mean I'd see things weekly that wildlife photographers would give their left nuts to document. But I never in my wildest dreams thought I'd encounter the kind of thing I did on March 18th th, 1999. It's something that I've thought about almost every single day since, something I can't ever get out of my mind, and something I don't think I ever will. And it started off a chain of events that I gradually became obsessed with, and that have changed my life forever. It started with a call about a potential forest fire up. My boss called and told me a hiker had seen some smoke rising up through the trees up near a place called Long Cabin in Sonora County. I probably don't need to tell you that forest fires can be absolutely devastating to an area like Yosemite, and are taken very, very seriously by us park rangers. Now, y'all should know that Long Cabin isn't technically in our jurisdiction, it's actually closer to Stanislaus National Forest. But since there was no one up in that area to go check it out, my boss asked me to go check it out and call in the fire department if it was a serious threat. We get a good number of calls like this, and more often than not, it's just a family whose barbecue has gotten out of hand, or kids whose campfire is a little too big. So I agree to drive up there to check it out, as it was only a couple of hours drive there and back. So after about an hour's drive, I arrive up at Long Barn, and I can see some black smoke rising up through the trees in the distance. This is unusual, as black smoke means it's not just wood burning, more like plastic or artificial fabrics, so it definitely wasn't wood burning. This is kind of a relief at first, it meant it wasn't an outright forest fire, but it did mean someone was burning something that was definitely not good for the environment. I park up as close as I can to the source of the smoke, then hike off through the trees, basically just following my nose as the smell of the burning plastics got stronger and stronger. Then, I see it. A burned out car abandoned among the trees, still kinda smoldering, but I guess the fire had been set at night and had mostly burned through before I got the call about it. My first thought was joy riders. Something as simple as car thieves that had bust into someone's vehicle, tore it up and down the quiet, country roads up here, then just abandoned it and set it alight to cover up any evidence. Again, this is a pretty unusual crime out here in the sticks, 
and you can forgive me for associating that sort of wanton mischief with more urban areas. But then I started to smell something else among the smoke, something more like burning meat. I'm a huge barbecue guy myself, and I know what it smells like when you leave something on the grill for too long, like that acrid, charred stench that I know is going to lead to disappointment because I've messed up on some expensive T-bone or whatever. Only, you're definitely not supposed to smell that coming off of a burning car, are you? And as you can imagine, I started to feel very, very uneasy about the whole thing. I circled the burned our vehicle, looking for signs of animal carcasses or, God forbid, human bodies that were in or around the vehicle, but saw nothing. I even checked under the car, but again, didn't see a thing. I pull out my phone to get in touch with the Sonora County Sheriff, who said he'd send over a couple of guys to check the scene out within the next hour or so, but who also asked me to stick around so I could guide them in and show them exactly where the vehicle was. So, given the fact I had an hour or two to kill waiting for them, I went into the trunk of my truck, pulled out the little fire extinguisher stored back there, and proceed to put out the few small fires still burning in and around the vehicle. I do so pretty effectively, but when I'm done, I notice there's still something smoldering in the trunk. Smoke keeps seeping out of the cracks, and the more it does, the more I can smell that burning meat smell. That's when it really hit me, something, or someone, was in that trunk, that's where the smell of was coming from. Waiting for those sheriff's deputies seemed like it took an eternity. Mainly because when they got there, I knew they'd be able to open that trunk, and I really didn't want to see what was inside. So they get there, I tell them what I suspect has happened, and what I suspect is in that trunk. One of the guys uses a crowbar to wrench the trunk open, which was pretty easy considering the fire had warped the metal locks keeping it closed. But what we saw inside is something I saw over and over again, in my nightmares, for many nights to come. It was a mess of blackened, burned flesh and contorted limbs. The sight of it alone caused me to gag and wretch, puking up my breakfast onto the forest floor. Even those deputies, hardened by years of witnessing violence and cruelty on a daily basis, had a hard time dealing with what they were seeing. One just leaned against a tree, mouth covered with a cloth rag he kept on him, probably for this exact reason while the other called in the coroner to deal with the bodies. They told me I could make a move back to Yosemite whenever I was ready, and boy was I ready, I got the hell out of there as soon as I was able to. From what I understand, the sheriff's deputies soon discovered that the two scorched bodies in the trunk of that burned-out vehicle, were those of Carol Sund and Sylvina Peloso. The two women, along with Carol Sund's young daughter Julie, had been missing since the previous February, when they were last sighted alive and well at the Cedar Lodge near Yosemite National Park. It was actually one my colleagues over at the park that had been the last person to see them alive, and the whole thing had drawn national attention, landing them on the cover of People magazine when some journalists took an interest in the story. And I mean, it was a really interesting story, albeit a very morbid one. Carol Sun's wallet had been found on a street in downtown Modesto, California, three days after they had disappeared, and Julie Sun's body was found dumped in heavy underbrush by an overlook at the Don Pedro Reservoir, several miles from the logging trail where the car had been found. 
Her throat had been slit from ear to ear. Local sheriffs and the FBI initially focused their investigation on a group of meth heads up in Northern California, who had previous convictions for stalking and assaulting lone groups of women. But all those leads were abandoned when a break in the case cast light on another suspect. Because the story doesn't end here, in fact, it got even worse for all of us that worked up in Yosemite. One of the staff members at the Yosemite Institute was a young woman named Joie Ruth Armstrong. Joie was friendly, bubbly, and generally just a joy to be around. I'd only ever met her once or twice in my time as a park ranger, but I could see why she was a popular member of the team. She loved nature, and she loved her job, even more passionately than most others on our staff. But in July of that same year, 1999, Joie had made plans to spend a weekend visiting friends down in Sausalito. Team members who lived in the log cabin she shared with them in Yosemite Village said their goodbyes, wished her safe travels and watched as she wandered off among the trees to catch a ride down to Sausalito. But a few days later, when she was due to return to the village, she didn't show up. She'd actually left some contact details with the team, just in case they needed to talk to her. But when they followed up with a call to check up on her, her friends told them she hadn't actually arrived to spend the weekend with them, and that they were starting to get worried. A group of rangers went over to the cabin she stayed at, only to find her white pickup truck was still parked in the driveway, packed with luggage for her trip. Having decided to begin their search in the immediate area, the rangers split up into smaller groups. They trudged through dense brush watching for rattlesnakes and looking for signs of their missing co-worker. Then after only a short while of searching, they apparently spotted footprints, broken saplings, trampled ferns and grass, all signs that someone had recently ran, or perhaps even been chases. That's when one of the rangers noticed something metallic, glinting in the sunlight just a few feet away. It was a keering, lying in a shallow ditch. It was the sighting of this keering that lead them to spot something else. It was a dead body. It had on the white t-shirt and blue jeans that Joie had been wearing the day she left for Sausalito. Except now, they were filthy, dirty encrusted and blood-stained, but despite bearing such similarities to our missing co-workers, it was impossible to immediately identify the body. That was because whoever had killed this person had also taken the time to cut off the head, decapitating it completely. For those of us that worked in and around Yosemite, Joie's murder meant that the nightmare of the those burned bodies, the nightmare we'd all tried to forget about, had come back with a vengeance. The killings were made even more disturbing to us by just how rare it was for anything like that to happen in this area of California. According to one of the older rangers, the last known murder to occur inside Yosemite's boundaries happened 12 years earlier. In 1987, when a guy pushed his wife off a cliff in order to collect on a life insurance policy. As you can tell, I've thought about this whole thing, and researched the various murders, a whole lot. And I've discovered that the chances of being murdered in one of our nation's national parks, is about 1 in 20 million. Basically, you have more chance of drowning in your own bathtub, so please don't think this is an actual thing. People don't just hang around in the woods waiting to ambush unwary hikers. In the months that had followed the discovery of those burned bodies in the trunk of the car, 
the cops had almost no luck in finding a suspect. And honestly, we didn't expect Joie's murder to be any different. But unbelievably, in the immediate aftermath of her killing, local authorities got lucky thanks to a witness statement given by one of our co-workers. They had noticed a blue and white 1979 International Scout parked near Joie's cabin on the night of her death, and the cops put out an APB on it right away. Then, a few days later on, two park rangers spotted a vehicle that looked remarkably similar, parked on the shoulder of a highway not too far away. What happened next was truly bizarre. I spoke to the guys who found the truck, who said they searched around it for a while until they came across a guy sunbathing, completely naked, at a nearby riverbank. They asked who he was, and he told them he was a handyman at the Cedar Lodge, some vacation homes built close by, and that his name was Kerry Stainer. The guy seemed kind of embarrassed that he'd been caught in the nude like that, and quickly left the area. But my co-workers immediately called the encounter into local cops, who showed up and compared the tire tacks left by the truck to those left at the scene of Joie's murder. They came back as exactly identical. A few days later, the same weird guy was taken into custody while he was visiting some nudist resort over near Sacramento. When they took him into custody and interviewed him regarding Joie's murder, he confessed, just straight up confessed. Then also confessed to the fact that he'd murdered Carol Sund, Sylvina Pelasso, as well as Carol's daughter Julie. The FBI were called in for additional questioning, and it was then that Carrie Stainer told them all about how he had fantasized about hurting women ever since he was a child, and how he had been completely unable to silence the voices in his head that told him to kill them. For five whole months, this absolute psychopath had been living right under our goddamn noses, hiding in plain sight. He'd been chilling up at Cedar Lodge, doing his job and eyeing up potential victims under the pretense of being a friendly, albeit a little kooky, local handyman. From what I can gather, no one had suspected him of having anything to do with the disappearances of Sund or Peloso because he just seemed way too nice, too much of a regular dude. That, and the Stinner family name had been in the news before. For a reason that led investigators to believe that there was no way that Carrie had it in him to do something so terrible. You see, many years before, when Carrie was just 11 years old, his younger brother, 7-year-old Stephen, disappeared without a trace one afternoon while walking home from school on his own. This devastated the family, causing a huge rift between Carrie and his dad. Eventually, Stephen escaped captivity after seven long years as the sex slave of Kenneth Parnell, a convicted pedophile and former employee of the Yosemite Lodge, inside the National Park. He became a celebrity of sorts, there was national newspaper and television coverage, as well as a book and a TV miniseries chronicling his years of abuse. Whether or not that whole thing shaped Kerry into the violent psychopath he eventually became is something I don't think anyone will be able to properly determine. But shortly after, Kerry began to claim he'd seen Bigfoot. Yes, the ape-man thing that's said to inhabit the woods of the Pacific Northwest. He was well on his way to be being completely detached from reality. At his trial in 2002, Kerry Stainer pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. His lawyers asserted that the entire Stainer family had a history of sexual abuse and mental illness, 
manifesting itself not only in the murders, but also his obsessive-compulsive disorder, his obsession with cryptids, specifically Bigfoot, and his request to be provided with obscene images in return for his eventual confession. He was nevertheless found sane and convicted of four counts of first-degree murder by a jury on August 27, 2002. The court then had to decide if he would be executed for his crimes, which it unanimously decided that he should, and rightly so. Stainer remains on death row as of September 2019, but problems with California death penalty laws are frustrating the process, and it's becoming increasingly unlikely that Kerry will suffer the same fate as his many victims. I know this was an overly long post, but as I'm sure you can all understand, this is something I've been quite frankly obsessed about, since the discovery of those burned bodies affected me to personally. I'm actually considering writing a book about the whole thing, and my experiences living and working in the places that most of these crimes occurred. If I can't ever get these things out of my head, why not try and turn the whole thing into a kind of therapy, turn it into something that others can enjoy, and maybe something I can make a few bucks out of, even if that does make me feel like a goddamn vampire, profiting off of other people's misery. Maybe let me know in the comments section, but regardless, I hope you enjoyed reading this, and maybe, just maybe, it'll help you stay safe in a world where people are out there with the word compulsions imaginable, driving them to kill. A few years ago my friend Tez and I set out on the Great American Road Trip. We were going to drive from New York to Los Angeles, zigzagging through the country for six weeks. We were both in our early 20s, pretty broke and as my mom had been a long-haul trucker, I suggested that to save a ton of money we should sleep in the back of our hatchback. It was a pretty cozy setup, we bought some blankets and sheets at Goodwill and cut one of them up to make curtains. By the end of the first week we'd gotten so we could set up camp in about 10 minutes, luggage moved to the front, curtains up, bedding laid down and out for the night. We slept in parking lots, free campsites, rest areas, basically anywhere it seemed safe and semi-legal. There was never a night, after the first night, where we felt scared, until the last week of the trip, in Arizona. We were near Flagstaff and had gotten pretty used to our routine. We didn't go on a set schedule and would never drive more than three or four hours a day. No destination really in mind, outside a few must-see landmarks, we'd drive to places we found the night before on Google and take suggestions from other campers, locals and people we met. We'd also gotten very good at making friends. We went to Denny's with a group of rednecks we met at a campsite, in the back of their pickup, because I got hungry and overheard them saying they were going to go. We met an 80-year-old cowboy who took us out drinking and taught us to line dance at a country bar, hope you're still kicking Grandpa Mac, played the guitar with some musicians in the middle of a thunderstorm, got fed breakfast and dinner by tons of campers who invited us to hang out with them, spent the 4th of July with a family who basically adopted us into their campsite, Grandma gave us some weed candy. Basically every encounter we had with a stranger was a positive one. This night didn't look to be any different. We found a free campsite on Google and drove up into the woods, following our GPS. We were pretty far out of town and something seemed a little bit off when we pulled up to the campsite. There was one RV parked, 
and two cars further up in the trees. We pulled up near the RV and a man opened the door. Tess waved hello and he just stared at her. His expression was completely blank. Then, as if she hadn't said anything he just slowly closed the door again, staring at us the entire time. Figuring he just wanted some privacy and thought we'd be obnoxious, we pulled further down the road and found a flat spot to park the car. Instead of our usual routine of setting up camp immediately while it was still light out, we goofed around for a while, smoking and laughing and taking dumb photos of ourselves. Tez pointed out a campfire further down the campsite and we decided to go be friendly. We'd met so many cool people in the previous five weeks by just going up and offering beer or just chatting. So we wandered over. Near the campfire there were two men, the owners of the cars we'd seen earlier. They seemed friendly and we sat down to chat with them. They were drinking and smoking and we sat down and had a beer with them. One of the men seemed pretty off, and we came to find out that the two of them didn't actually know one another. The older man was definitely on some sort of drugs, he was spinning in circles and talking about UFOs however he seemed harmless. This left us chatting with a younger man, who claimed to be a former park ranger. He was handsome and easygoing, and we spent several hours just chatting about our trip, families, everything. Then he started talking about the bear. He'd seen a bear earlier in the forest. Tez didn't believe him and he pulled out his camera to show her photos of the bear. It was very close to the campsite, and we both were a little freaked out. It wasn't unheard of for one of us to get up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, so the idea of a bear hanging around in the night spooked us. The ranger just laughed, and then his expression changed completely. It's hard to describe, but his voice seemed somehow cold. He said, if you get out of your car in the middle of the night, it's not a bear you should be worried about. I kept waiting for the laugh, or for him to nudge Tez with his elbow. Jokes on the foreigner and the city girl, right? He never did. I laughed awkwardly and made a dumb joke about serial killers in the woods. My friend laughed as well and joked about Texas Chainsaw Massacre. We moved on to another subject, but within five minutes the ranger had come back to it and was talking about something grabbing us from our car in the middle of the night. No matter how we tried to steer the conversation away from serial killers, he kept latching back on. The older man was high as a kite at this point and was staring at the stars, not talking. We just awkwardly laugh and sip our beer and try to get the conversation going somewhere else. Then the ranger stood up and walked towards the cooler to get another beer. At this point it's pitch black out, and I can't see anything outside the circle of light from the campfire. The beer cooler was outside of that circle. Suddenly there is a red dot in the darkness, and it took a moment for me to realize that it's a camera. The ranger is holding a camera. He had taken a photo of us, I could see the screen on the digital camera lit up. Now, it wasn't odd for the people we met to ask to take pictures with us. My friend Tez is gorgeous, dark hair, blue eyes like a young Megan Fox, and we were friendly. People like having pictures of themselves. It was an entirely strange thing to have this person taking a photo of us, without asking, or even indicating that that's what he was doing. We were both staring at him like deer in the headlights at this point, but instead of realizing what he's doing is a bit weird, he checks his camera, 
Adjust some things and takes another photo. This time with the flash. No asking us to smile, no proposing a group photo, and no explanation. After this photo he comes back to the fire and sits down. Not a word said about the photo. At this point me and Tez are mutually freaked out. We make some BS excuse that we need to go set up our campsite and nope the hell out. When we stand to leave, the UFO guy smiles and says to have a good night. Ranger however looks at us with a smile that doesn't reach his eyes and says be careful out there, there's more than bears in the woods. Every hair on my body stood on end. I wasn't alone in my discomfort either because Tez laughed a response out and pulled me away from the campfire towards our car. We rushed back to the car, which we only found in the dark by referencing the RV, and jump in the front seats. My friend Tez is all but hyperventilating. Why did he take pictures of us? I was shaking. I responded, I read that serial killers sometimes warn their victims. She stared at me for a second and locked the car doors. Do you think he just took victim photos of us? We both freaked out. She's in a full panic and turns the headlights on in the car. I immediately yell at her to turn them off, because now he knows exactly where our car is. God knows why, but that is the only night we'd not set up camp. We didn't need to tear anything down, so we just put the car in drive and floored it out of the campsite. As we got onto the dirt road, Ranger was walking towards our car with that same cold expression. Ranger, let's not meet. Ever again. I visited Yellowstone National Park last week, and decided to take our boat out on the Yellowstone Lake yesterday. This was our last day and wanted to end our trip on a high note. While we were loading our boat down into the launch pad, there were fishermen from Wisconsin, catching trout, cutting them up, and then throwing them back into the lake. This is a government job aka, an angler incentive program to manage the fisheries. One could tell how experienced these men were and knowledgeable about the lakes just by talking to them and watching them work in rhythm, as they probably had for several years. Basically, these guys know their shit. So, a couple of the older bigger guys were kind enough to help us get our boat in, we are new to using this boat. The guys tell us to be careful, the water has big swells and it's getting windy. In a side conversation, an angler tells my dad about the bodies still lost on the lake and never recovered, including a couple park rangers. The angler explains the water is too cold and within 20 minutes hypothermia has set in. So again, he cautions us and we head out anyway. We didn't make it far, three to five foot swells pushed us back in. It was almost as if the angler was expecting our short return, and he helped us guide the boat back into the dock onto the boat trailer. He just smiled and said I'm glad you're back. It's bad weather out there. I felt I had to give you the background so you could see why I am so curious about these missing people, bodies in the lake, and park rangers' bodies all believed to be at the bottom of Yellowstone Lake. However, I cannot find any information on these missing people and missing rangers. I asked other park employees and researched National Park website. Nothing. What are your thoughts? Anyone know about missing people and missing park rangers at Yellowstone Lake?
little bit of background about myself. I've worked my entire adult life in the Pacific Northwest woods, over 15 years in total with about 7 years of that being for the park service at Olympic National Park. Many, many experiences over the years could warrant the title of creepy. This one in particular has always stuck with me. While working for the park service one of my jobs was that of a restoration carpenter. We would travel to old backcountry historical cabins, emergency shelters, homesteads and chalets, tasked with repairing and restoring them to their original historic accurate states. This was a wonderful and demanding job. I'd spend eight days at a time living off the beaten path usually deep in the backcountry. Sometimes we'd be flown in supplies, sometimes we'd use llamas or mules to pack our gear. All the while sleeping in thinly walled single tents, cooking over a fire or whisper light stove, using the same tools and techniques the original homesteaders had at their disposal in the late 1800s to construct and survive in this unforgiving environment. One late fall I was assigned to work near Lake Ozad at an old homestead off the trail, near the constructed boardwalk. For those unfamiliar with the area Lake Ozad is 8 miles long and 3 miles wide, it sits as the largest unaltered natural lake in Washington. Lake Ozet has a long and rich history of Native American culture. The Macaw Tribal Center in Nia Bay houses discoveries found in the area dating back 2000 years, along with a local village that was well preserved over 300 years ago by a mudslide that left most of the artifacts intact. The Ozet Loop Trail, which the homestead was directly adjacent to, is approximately 9.4 miles through and through. The man-made boardwalk takes you under giant cedar groves, meanders through huge patches of chest-high salal before delivering you to Alstrom's Prairie about 2.5 miles from the trailhead. Alstrom's Prairie, a giant soggy meadow, was once farmed by two Swedish immigrants. They constructed a small cabin and some outbuildings on the 150-acre bog. With cattle, sheep, vegetable gardens and the help of a little Swedish ingenuity they managed to etch out lives for themselves here for over 50 years. Over time the forest, as it always does, decided to take back what was once its own. The now decades-long abandoned farm was hardly recognizable. Our job was to, beat back the encroaching forest, put new windows in the main cabin, pipe in a new stove, apply fresh paint and fix up portions of the semi-dilapidated barn. The ultimate goal being to allow guided tours to take place sometime in the future. For about three weeks we stayed at the Ozet bunkhouse while working at Alstrom's. This was good duty for us, we weren't sleeping under the rain, our beds were warm, our hike was short and the terrain not difficult, we even had TV. The bunkhouse was located near the highway and ranger station. We would hike the five-mile loop every day bringing with us boards, tools, paint and everything else we needed, on our backs. These we full 10-plus hour days, usually started our morning hike around 7 and beginning our evening return hike back to the bunkhouse around 17. At one point during the fall there were four of us working this project, but at the time of this event there was only two of us remaining. Most of the hard work had already been finished. We needed to hike a few last boards into the prairie to complete a portion of the woodshed before we called the job done. I volunteered to be the pack mule for the day, 
My only job being to carry as many boards as I could muster in each trip to the prairie before returning to the ranger station for the next load. It was late in the season for hikers at this point, the weather had turned and we'd be lucky to see two to three people a day doing the loop. After around my fourth of fifth trip I was pretty wiped, it was getting late in the evening now, around 1600 and my co-worker had called it a day. I thought I could get one more trip in before it got too dark, my rational being the more trips I did today, the less I would have to do tomorrow. We passed on the trail, I told him my intentions and continued on. I delivered the last of the boards for the day, took a look around the prairie as the sun started to tuck behind the trees and started my hour hike back to the ranger station. The lighting on the boardwalk was quite low at this point, the cedars blocking most of the ambient light left by the setting sun and making visibility quite diminished. I'm not a nervous hiker and fail to spook easily, having solo hiked for weeks on end in the backcountry I've been, stalked by cougars, confronted by Kodiak bears in Alaska, even ran into a few demented hillbillies over the years. As I left the prairie that evening the hair on my neck stood on end, goosebumps erupted from my forearms. An uneasy feeling swept over me. Suddenly I wanted to walk fast. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Jog, then sprint. I didn't, instead I convinced myself I'd been reading too many fantasy novels before bedtime. I walked another five minutes or so before I started to hear something faint, something that sounded like music. Impossible I told myself, I'm the only one out here and still at least two miles from civilization, that civilization in reality being likely the only other soul out there, my co-worker. Sure enough, however, I heard music, more specifically a piano. It started out so faint I had to stop moving and actually try to hear it, the steps on the wooden boardwalk being too loud. Every time I paused to hear it, it became unmistakable, it got louder. I stood there, sun now fully hidden behind the horizon, in total silence other than this piano. I became aware that there were no longer the noise of life, no birds, no insects, no wind, no rustling of leaves or underbrush, absolutely nothing other than the piano. As if everything was being weighted down by a fog of emptiness of some sorts. I've encountered this dead time before in the woods, certain places have it, but this was different somehow, unique to this place, unique to this moment in time. 
I tried to focus on the keys but I couldn't recognize the composition, unsurprising as I mostly listened to Metallica and Korn at the time. It was playing with a purpose, it was controlled, in tune, thoughtful. It was a song and somehow I felt that it was meant just for me in this moment. I started walking again, almost on K the music once again got louder. As my pace increased, so did the tempo of the keys, still in tune, never faltering. It reached a climax, the perfect combination of my haste, my dread, my heartbeat and the tempo of the music. Then as quickly as it came the piano stopped, whooshed away in the fraction of a moment. It didn't trail off, it didn't fade into extinction, it was just gone. Suddenly everything that was absent was swept away as if by a gust of wind. The stillness was gone, the gloom, the stagnation and weight of everything was lifted. My next step on the boardwalk was once again in reality. The evening was just as absent of light as before but it felt like life, somehow, was once again injected back into the forest. The woods seemed normal again. I didn't hear the piano again that night, nor since. I told my co-worker every detail when I reached the bunkhouse, he showed no signs of disbelief. We didn't talk about it again until years later, when something similar happened to another park service employee. When I told my grandfather about what happened, as he was a retired park ranger who had worked nearby at Mora, the next station over, without the least bit of hesitation he asked, did you hear the bagpipes along with it, or just the piano this time? It seems, as I've learned and experienced since then, there is a lot more to that place, a lot more to the Olympics in general, than anyone really knows or is willing to admit. On a night in 2006 or 2007, I guess, I noticed a campfire in the distance and I went to investigate as setting up camps in this area was not allowed as conservation efforts were in place. I walked over no one was here and thought what idiots would let a fire unattended. So I went over there were about two tents from what I remember and no one there I radioed in and asked for a couple of guys to come to clean up. When they arrived I went to look for any sign that people were around. I looked about for a couple of minutes didn't find anything. Then we all left after extinguishing the fire and clearing up we had one guy stay there as we had unattended equipment. Then I went back to the office I was due a break. After the break I went out and saw a group of three who seemed fairly distressed I approached them and asked them what they're doing down this neck of the woods and they said that they were camping and had been told to leave their campsite immediately. I become suspicious as we had no rangers working there. I asked them who they saw and they said that he was wearing very old-fashioned clothes and he supposedly had no face at this point shivers was sent down my spine I told them to go and collect their equipment and they went to get their equipment then I saw them leaving. I have only mentioned this to my friend who works in the park from 2006. He hasn't had any reports of such thing up to this day. This one of my scariest stories. I still have no clue what happened but when hearing that in the dark and in the middle of the woods shiver were sent down my spine. These stories all happened to me at a popular national park. They are true, and while they might not be the craziest stories out there, I find them of interest. Story 1. The first story starts with me trekking into the desert on my own. 
In my mid-twenties I started to camp slash hike alone quite a bit, and what I hiked I would seek as remote a location as possible. I'm 5 feet 5 petite female and honestly made some dumb decisions, wearing headphones while wandering terrain alone, but I had a lot of fun and have since gotten smarter about handling myself in the wilderness. I had hopped in my car and headed to the desert as I so often do and picked a spot to park where there were no cars, tourists, people of any sort, grabbed my pack and headphones and excitedly hopped out of the car to go off and explore and climb some rocks in the distance. I'm feeling good until I get not even a mile out and I see this huge bullet in the dirt, my dad, who is law enforcement and was National Guard later, said the way I described the size, it had to be from a grounded gun and there was no way someone could just walk through the desert with this weapon. Something about it unsettled me and I didn't know if I should bring it to the ranger or what. I felt weird taking it with me so I ended up awkwardly burying it and moving on. For whatever reason it put me in intense unease, I felt jumpy and jarred, none of the usual relaxation I have on my treks. A few steps later I hear the weirdest noise I have ever heard in my entire life. It was this high-pitched buzzing slash electric noise that just encompassed the space around me. Now if you know the desert, you know the acoustics can sometimes get weird since noise bounces off rocks but this was akin to nothing I've heard, and my instinctual reaction was sheer panic. I fumble for my phone and surprisingly have reception, so I call my then boyfriend and he tells me it's probably nothing and I should go enjoy myself. I take a few more steps and the noise instantly starts again, louder, and my body is screaming to hightail it back to the car, which I do. I'm stumbling over myself and back on the phone with my boyfriend feeling like I'm being chased. I make it back and feel a rush of relief as I get in my car. I know this might sound anticlimactic but the amount of fear I felt in that moment is something I have never felt before or since. It felt like a warning of sorts to stay the heck away. I strongly believe in intuition so my I trusted my gut that it was not anything good. I am hoping someone has experienced something similar or has insight, I've yet to google anything useful. Story 2, Story 2 takes place at the same national park. One thing I love about this park is there's a fairly decent chance you'll see weird stuff in the sky at night. I attribute it to the fact that there is a military test pilot base fairly close by. But what you see is some really strange phenomena. This was the most interesting one I've seen. The openness of the desert makes it easy to see the beautiful night sky above you. One particular night I look up and see some objects flying high up and off in the distance, if I remember correctly one was white and one was red. They moved in strange formations and it paces too fast for any aerial physics that I know of. I can't imagine the g-force involved, or how we could have technology that allows for speed that fast. I'm in awe watching this for a while, them zipping around, and to make things even more baffling, they moved in diagonal lines at certain points. Like, literally making acute angle turns on a hairpin. They would also sometimes pause and suspend, then zip around more. The final spectacular was when I start to see them fly towards each other, and seemingly merge into one object. It then changes color, I can't remember the color, just that it changed. This now singular object shines a little brighter then slowly fades out to nothing. I'm sure I'm missing a few details, 
but it was one of the most bizarre and amazing things I've ever seen. Again, I'm guessing it's military related, so either they have some crazy aerial technology, or they are in cahoots with extraterrestrial. Story 3, the last story is more of an annoyance, I found some rocks on a main trail where someone had performed some ritual, which I'm not necessarily against the occult, but there was what looked like blood there and that I was absolutely not okay with. Probably some dumb kids trying to be cool. But yeah, I love nature and the desert in particular holds a very special and magical place in my heart. Anyways, thanks for reading and stay safe out there. I lived in Columbia, South Carolina and frequented Congaree National Park, so I'm familiar with the area. I often would jump the fence and walk the boardwalk at night, as it's super peaceful to walk the swamp and hear all the wildlife. They never have a ranger slash guard there after hours, so I was always alone. The last time I did this in October 2021 I was taking my usual stroll with flashlight in hand. I should mention, between the insects and frogs the sound is loud. But then it completely stopped when I was about a mile in. I heard what I thought was my wife call me from the trail ahead, but she wasn't there, I was alone and she was out of town. I then heard water sloshing to my right and saw nothing with my flashlight. I chalked it up as being tired and kept moving. The wildlife started up shortly after and everything was fine. Maybe 15 minutes later I noticed it got eerily quiet again and heard swamp water sloshing on my left, but this time it was more deliberate? Like somebody walking. I was in a thick portion of the cypress and couldn't see more than 20 feet in front of me, and then I heard my wife's voice again. Again, she wasn't with me and was out of town, certainly not moving through a swamp at 1am. I saw what looked like a human silhouette move between the trees for a split second but it was. Off. Very skinny, pale, and taller than me at six feet I noped the F out of there and ran the almost two miles back to my truck and didn't slow down until I heard the wildlife again. Like I said, this is a boardwalk that's in a swamp in the boonies. Nobody is walking around in the water at night without a light, or ever, and I don't know of any animal that big that walks in bipedal pattern and have spent my life in the outdoors. I feel I should add that I wasn't high or sleep deprived, I just like the woods at night. I was so freaked by this I came to Reddit and dove into some of the stories on this sub as well as others. I'm convinced I encountered a crawler or Wendigo or something else that can mimic voices. There's no way some meth head was stumbling through the swamp miles from civilization that sounds like wifey, but then again it is also South Carolina. Just over a decade ago I was in college in the southeastern Kentucky area. My friends and I regularly partook in enjoying grass. Growing tired of lighting up behind a building or crammed inside a car we decided to go on an adventure to experience the highs of life. We were near a national park with a mountain with a scenic overlook that you could drive up on a winding road or hike up on trails. So we decided we would make it to the top of the mountain to toke up and revel in fulfilling something we set out to do. Not a huge accomplishment, but for a group of stoners and slackers it was like reaching the height of humanity. Only five as us actually want to do this, 
Me and three other guys and a girl we didn't really hang out with much. I was amazed that this girl, who as far as I knew didn't know any of us that well, would go out in the wilderness at night with a group of random dudes. I made a mental note to keep an eye out and protect her if need be. I think she kinda felt this cause anytime she got spooked she hid behind me. Even though I was like the smallest and least tough guy there. The five of us set out as soon as the sun set. We borrowed some bicycles, don't worry we did return them, so technically we really did borrow them, just without permission, and headed towards the trailhead. We have some shenanigans before we start, scaring each other as well as amping ourselves up for this extraordinary adventure. We head up the trail and are completely in the wilderness. Luckily the moon is out so we can see pretty easily without flashlights. Since it's dark and the park is closed we start walking up the road once the trail crosses it. Halfway up one of the guys has an epileptic seizure and we think about turning back, but he says he's okay and after much debate we continue on. I guess it wasn't a bad one and he had been dealing with them all his life. In addition to that, two guys want to just light up before we get to the top and head back. As I'm writing this, I can't remember if there was more people and they went back down halfway up. Either way there was five of us at the top. Maybe four. Nothing else eventful happened going up the mountain. We made it to the top, smoked, relaxed, and basked in the glory of reaching the top. We eventually make our way back down the trail this time. As we head back, the guy in front stops dead in his tracks. He says did you hear that? We all listen quietly. We hear a loud beep noise. The guy that first heard the noise says there's somebody out there. We hear the beep again and everyone immediately starts running down the trail. My mind starts clearing up and I'm thinking, okay it's definitely something electrical. Maybe a ranger with some kind of device. A security thing? Something isn't adding up. Is it someone's phone? We slow down and I say wait let's figure this out. Then we hear the beep again and everyone starts running again. At this point I'm annoyed cause I want to figure out what it is so we aren't just running and can maybe come up with a plan. At some point we stop again and another guy says wait. It's my phone. It took us two hours to hike up to the top, we reached the bottom in 40 minutes. About 15 years ago I lived in Sulphur, Oklahoma. My playground? The Chickasaw National Recreation Area. I loved that park so much. I rode more miles on my bike than anywhere else. I've walked nearly every trail and rode every road. Every day I would ride my mountain bike up and down the trails and would be home by nightfall most days. One night however I had rode out a bit further than usual. On my way back however, I decided to ride the trail from an area known as Buffalo Springs where they have lived Buffalo Rome and there is a large spring slash fountain there for all to enjoy. As I was riding back, I knew the end of the trail was coming up and I would have to cross a stone bridge across the creek then up the road to my home. It was dark at this time and all I had to use to see was the full moon. I was maybe a few hundred yards from it when I got a sharp pain in my left thigh. I stopped and looked around to see what just hit me. Then I heard a noise sounding like something hitting the ground hard in front of me. There was a rock about the size of a baseball rolling across the trail. Me confused, starts to look up the side of this hill. 
Just as I turn my head to look I almost fall off my bike when another rock comes flying down and hitting my front wheel. I finally have my eyes adjust to look and see someone very tall and dark and covered in hair at the top of the hill throwing things at me and screaming. I yelled I had a cell phone and was going to call the police. I didn't actually have one as I didn't have a cell phone yet. This seemed to have pissed it slash him off. He started charging down the hill at me. I, for obvious reasons, light up bike and took off. Just as I crossed the bridge I heard a huge splashing noise in the creek and seen it was a large rock that had been thrown. I was in the clear to home but was frightened all the way there. I went to the ranger station later the next morning and told a ranger I knew there about what happened. He says, park ranger, so you were attacked by Bigfoot? Snidely laughing. Me, I don't know what it was. But something was trying to hurt me out there. Park ranger. Okay Justin. If I have any more Bigfoot I'll let you know what we get. I just said fine and left. The very next week I was riding, in the daylight, when park ranger pulled up next to me and said for me to get get in. I asked why. He said he needed to show me something. We headed to the police department in town. Before we got out of the car he turns to me and says park ranger, Justin I have to give you a huge apology. I will be honest that I didn't believe you when you told me that story of you being attacked. However it has come to my attention that a couple was out in the same area last night and was attacked in the same way, saying they had seen a large hairy creature throwing rocks and sticks and screaming at them. They called the police and they came out with some of the other rangers including myself, I immediately thought about what you had told me. When we arrived and started up the hill, sure enough, we were having rocks and things thrown at us. Guns drawn and yelling, two officers tackled a man to the ground. He was six feet five tall, naked, covered in mud and had long hair and a large beard. He had escaped from the Veterans Center across Veterans Lake. Apparently he thought he was back in Vietnam and he was trying to take out the enemy. Park Ranger said I was very lucky because he was trying to kill me. We went inside so I could give the police my statement as to what had happened. They had him sent to a more secure facility somewhere else. To this day I still get the shivers when I hike that trail and I always keep my eyes on the ridge top. It was early spring 2016. I had just turned 24 years old. My friend and I just reached our main spot to camp. Black Canyon Rim Campgrounds just outside of Payson, Arizona. We'd usually travel out here two or three times each year. It has some incredible views and is only a couple hours away from the city. For the most part, this area was pretty secluded. A privately owned convenience store rested a few miles away, with a small town 20 miles before that. The entrance was on a dirt road, directly off the highway, with a campground sign at the start of the road, marking local wildlife, any fire hazards, and general news relevant to camping folk. The pathing is mostly linear, with maybe one fork, spanning several miles. We once traveled down the dirt road to see how far it would take us. One of the paths would take you to another highway entrance, with a ranger's tower halfway there. The other path led to a dead end. An abandoned cabin can be found on this path, a few miles in, mostly hidden off in the distance behind some larger foliage. 
The snow had mostly cleared up at this point, leaving for crisp air, a slight chill, and fauna becoming active again. We'd usually spot some wild horses, several deer, and tons of little critters whenever we'd come out this way. It really was the perfect time of year for a relaxing trip to get away from the city for a few days. We got in around 4 p.m. on a Tuesday. It was late for us, as we'd usually try to make it out there by noon at latest. This trip was pretty spontaneous. We both had work during the coming weekend, and decided to just go for it. The sun was setting fast, and we still hadn't picked our spot to camp. There were maybe two other groups, both families, parked somewhat close to the entrance, only a few hundred yards away from the highway. This time around, we just wanted to get away from humans for a while. Customer service jobs will do that to you. We drove down the dirt road, past our usual spot, and finally picked the perfect area. A small clearing, just hanging off the edge of a hill. The whole valley could be seen from this area, with a beautiful sunset. This would have been our main spot from then on, if the next night's incident never happened, that is. We agreed to get a campfire going, and would just avoid building a tent this trip. We didn't have much time to do so anyway, and her car wasn't that uncomfortable. I'd sleep in the back seat, and she'd take the passenger seat. With the windows slightly ajar, we'd have a few blankets for each of us, and would fall into that unrivaled slumber. The next day went fairly uneventful. We just decompressed. I had this strange feeling throughout the day though, like we were being watched. There were crunching of leaves just out of sight every few hours, but I figured it was just the local wildlife doing their thing. My friend didn't notice anything unusual, so I didn't dwell on it. Night came, and the feeling still hadn't gone away. My friend must have felt something she didn't vocalize, though. She took some of her sleeping pills. She didn't usually need to take them on our camping trips, the nature's ambience was enough to put anyone to sleep, I thought. It was nearing 1am. My friend dozed off in the passenger's seat, while I attempted to wind down in the back. I leaned against the side window, behind the passenger seat, legs outstretched to the car's back door. The window opposite of me was rolled down slightly, with a cold breeze flowing in. I had been on my phone, scrolling through Facebook or whatever, when I heard something outside. A few crunches of the fallen leaves, several paces outside the car. I whispered to my friend, did you hear that? But she was already out. I put my phone down and listened intently for a minute or two. Nothing. It must have been a small animal, curious of the camp. I went back to my phone, scrolling through social media. About 10 minutes had passed, when I heard it again. Crunch. Right outside the door. I lowered the phone. My eyes took a moment to adjust from the light of the phone into the deep dark of the woods. As I turned the phone away from me, the backlight illuminated the window above my feet. To this day, I can't get the image out of my head. Two dirty, scabbed hands held onto the window. The fingers wrapped inside the car. The nails were long, unkept, and dark. Behind the window, a silhouette of a face was pressed up against it. The breath would create condensation every few seconds. All I could make out were the reflections of those empty, black eyes. I couldn't move. I couldn't scream. 
It felt like eternity, the staring contest between me and this thing. Thoughts were repeating incessantly in my head. Why haven't they ran away when they saw I noticed them? What were they planning? Is this the face of death? After probably 10 seconds of not doing anything, the hand slowly unclenched the window and receded into the darkness. The condensation on the window dispersed. Another couple seconds passed before I heard the dreaded crunch, 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 crunch melodically fading into the distance. I, still, just sat there. What in the F just happened? Why didn't I do anything? Why am I still not doing anything? With that thought, my body shot into adrenaline. I pounded on my friend's seat, waking her up from her slumber into a dizzy confusion. I unlatched and kicked open the back door, and took a moment to scan the area. Whoever they were, whatever it was, it was gone. I scrambled to pick up any important camping supplies we left outside, and just crammed everything into the back seat and trunk, periodically looking over my shoulder, listening for those footsteps. I slammed the back door shut, and there they were, a grim reminder of the horror that just happened. Two handprints, imprinted on the window. I quickly wiped them off the window in a panic, a reaction to erase the event, I guess. I jumped into the front seat, started the car, and floored it out of there, my friend, finally coming too, asked me what the hell I'm doing. We gotta go, I said, there's someone out there. I didn't see whatever, or whoever it was while fleeing the scene. Speeding down the dirt road, my friend insisted I slow down, and I eventually did. We reached the highway, and I proceeded to drive 20 or so miles before we reached a Denny's where my friend asked for us to stop it to eat and explain everything. The nightmares subsided a few months later. My embarrassment continues to this day, for the state of shock I was in at the time. Everybody says you either have a fight or flight instinct, and I'm confused whether I have either. I mean, I just sat there and did nothing. I frequently tend to ask myself who was out there. Another camper messing with us? A resident of the abandoned cabin down the dirt road? Or maybe something more paranormal residing in the forest, watching lone, vulnerable campers as they drift off to dreamland. We'd still go camping there in the years ahead, but never too far from the highway. Whatever it was, I hope that was the last I've seen of it. So this happened my freshman year of college. I currently am working as a park ranger and I absolutely love my job. However the classes I took in college were no walk in the park, no pun intended. Basically it was all environmentally focused classes as you would expect for the career I was aiming for, and I did enjoy most of the classes I took, however some of the classes seriously made me reconsider my major and entire career path. One of these classes focused on river water. The college I attended was very small and heavily focused on literature and environmental science. The college sits along a river. It's truly beautiful and I often miss my four years there. They don't lie when they say college goes by fast. Anyway, one of the buildings at my college was a newly built totally eco-friendly environmental building. It was used to study the river and the water that made up the river. Very important work, but very tedious in my opinion. One night I had procrastinated as usual, 
and I realized that I had to finish a paper on the effects of rainwater on the river. We had recently had some massive storms come through and the river swelled to massive sizes and almost flooded the little college town I called home. Luckily that didn't happen, but our professor thought this would be a great opportunity to see how the rainwater after a storm can affect the river. So I rolled out of bed, told my roommate Jake where I was going, and made my way outside. As I stated before the college is very small. Like you can get from one end of campus to the next in like five if you walk fast enough. So I begin walking in the direction of the environmental building. Night was falling, I'd say it was like 6.45 or so. I got to the building, took off my messenger's bag, took out my laptop and folders, and got to work. I won't bore you with the details of measuring the effects of rainwater on a river but basically it entailed me collecting water, bringing it back to the lab, and running tests on it until I wanted to die. It's a long process and very boring. As I had begun to type up my findings in my laptop I heard a crash from somewhere in the building. I shot out of my seat and looked around my shoulder. I was definitely the only person in the building when I came in. I would have known if someone had come in as well because the door has one of the beeping mechanisms that alerts everyone that someone entered. As I waiting, I heard another crash, this time sounding closer. It sounds as if someone is slamming their first into the glass cabinets that line the walls in the main part of the building. These cabinets are full of unique trinkets that have been found in the river. Some of that stuff was super valuable and so at first I thought this may be a robbery. I sat there one hand still hovering over my laptop keys, considering my options when I see a head peek out. It's looking straight into the lab I'm currently in. I just about pissed my pants and I screamed. Out from the doorway stepped a old man. He had to be about 75 years old. He was wearing pajamas and his thin patches of gray hair, and wild eyes gave him the look of a deranged person. I then took notice to the massive shard of glass in his hand. It had clearly cut into his hand as blood was pouring down it and dripping onto the floor. He raised the shard of glass and only then did I realize the true gravity of the situation. What I did next I still regret but it may have saved my life. I chose fight over flight and ran at the man. I think he wasn't expecting this, and so just as he raised his hand with the glass, I threw a massive overhand right that cracked loudly on the old psycho's jaw. I felt bone crack and saw two teeth go flying. I also felt the glass make connection with my cheek and immediately felt the warm gush of blood as it cascaded down my cheek. The man crumpled and I stood panting for a good minute before I composed myself and called the cops. They arrived on record time, not like much crime goes on in the town anyway and they took the man away in cuffs after he was conscious. They took my statement and called an ambulance for me. I got my cheek stitched up, and later found out the man was taken to the same ER I was at. I still have the scar where that man cut me, but I don't mind. I later was told that the man was suffering from some sort of illness, I'm guessing some form of sundown syndrome or dementia. I do feel a little guilty for coing the old man but I was in a life or death situation. That man could have easily seriously harmed or killed me if he wanted to. Anyway, that's probably the scariest thing that's ever happened to me. I have experienced some wacky things as a park ranger, 
but nothing that tops the pure fear I felt in that moment. Now it's just a cool story to share. Thanks for sharing, and please stay safe, you never know what danger lurks right around the corner.